1976, this institution moved into our former home just across the river, the former Regis College campus on Ballyconner Court. Regis College, if you don't know, is uh, the Jesuit seminary here in Toronto. It's now down on, at Queen's Park and Wellesley. And you could be forgiven for not realizing if you just walked into the Ballyconner building that it was a Catholic building because it didn't look particularly Catholic. That was a moment in Catholic history where there was a lot of experimentation going on with architecture and liturgy and things like that. But uh, it was, in fact, uh, a Catholic institution which we took over. On the other hand, it's pretty hard to walk into this place and not realize its Catholic origins. So we have this history of taking over Catholic properties, and uh, you know, I think that the Catholics are probably looking around at their various uh, properties in the city and wondering what we are eyeing to take on next. But I am told that 40 years ago, Hopefully it's more than 40 years before we have to move again. 40 years ago, when we moved into that space, members of our community took sledgehammers, went into the chapel, and smashed the marble altar that had been left by the Jesuits. Now, to be fair, there was a practical motivation for this course of action. It was very heavy. They wanted to move it, and they couldn't, so they had to break it into pieces. However... The way the story's been told to me, of course I wasn't there, implies that this uh, was undertaken with a certain amount of iconoclastic glee. Pieces of the smashed altar were found subsequently scattered around the campus and used for all sorts of things like paperweights and doorstoppers. Personally, I think that was a rather crass display of disrespect. And I have a colleague who is a Jesuit, and I can tell you that the Jesuits knew about it and to this day remember it and uh, with hurt that that was what we did to their, to their altar. So I and I know others are, are embarrassed a bit by that story. And I begin with that story because when I hear these words from, from First Peter... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession... I feel a bit like Gideon, you know, cowering from his enemies, beating out his wheat in the wine press, only to be addressed by the angel of the Lord as a mighty warrior. In the midst of all the follies of church life, and all of us can supply our own examples, we might be tempted to look around and ask, is this addressed to us? Are we this holy and precious people? And in particular today, I want to reflect on what it means to hear this passage as a divided church. Now, relationships among Christians today are much better than they have been in the past. In many senses, it seems that we, are, we have more unity now than we have had uh, for a long time, and um, certainly more cordiality. But sometimes I think it might be mere historical ignorance or forgetfulness that makes us to uh, overlook or think that our divisions don't matter. But real growth in unity requires 
that we acknowledge our past wrongs. Reconciliation can't happen without acknowledgement of our sin. And so we can't ignore our divisions. We can't pretend they're not there, even if they're centuries old. We can't simply rebrand them as a wonderful smorgasbord of spirituality. Now, there's a wonderful richness in the diversity of all the Christian traditions, but there's also a great poverty in our isolation from one another and our frequent indifference We've come a long way, but sometimes I wonder if there isn't a a sheen of Canadian niceness over our relationships with our brothers and sisters from other churches. You know, we Canadians, we pride ourselves on being polite, right? But I've also been told that some newcomers to Canada find our politeness to be a bit superficial. You know, we don't want any unpleasantness, but we also really don't want to get involved in other people's lives. Uh, We don't want to hear about their problems, and never mind talking about our own. But of course, the unity of the church requires something much deeper than cordiality. It's about being joined together, being built together, as 1 Peter describes it. The challenge of Christian unity requires that we, we pray for real reconciliation within the Christian community so that we can be ambassadors of reconciliation outside of the Christian community. And if we really grasp the scandal of division and the challenge of reconciliation even among Christians, and if we heed the words of Christ who prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one, so that the world might believe, then we too might be moved to get down on our knees and join with Christ in praying that prayer. Because on some days it seems next to impossible that we might actually be the people that the gospel proclaims us to be. But we don't have to skip over our sins, see, when we proclaim God's mighty deeds. The scandal of our disunity is something that must be born. And in spite of our Canadian politeness, it is a scandal. It is a scandal that we cannot all share the Lord's Supper together. It is a scandal that we can't recognize one another's baptisms. It is a scandal that we cannot act together in mission or that we simply don't, even when we could, in the face of great need. And these are all complicated questions, and I'm not saying there's an answer to them. I'm not saying we can overcome them. I'm just saying we need to acknowledge that the problems are there, that they are scandalous. But we can bear this scandal of our disunity because it can be borne, because we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ crucified. Because the hope of the church comes from outside of the church. And Charles Wesley explains this, uh, expresses this wonderfully in a poem where he compares the church to the moon, which, though it may shine brightly, has no light of its own. He writes, fair as the unclouded moon with borrowed rays, she shines. Shines, but, ah, she changes soon. And when at full declines, frequent long eclipses feels. Till Jesus drives the shades away, all her doubts and sins dispels and brings the perfect day. So the church 
does indeed shine, but it shines with borrowed rays. Reflecting the glory of Christ, though our sin often clouds that reflection. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. The second and third of these descriptors echoes Exodus 19, which we read. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And this is the charge delivered at Sinai as the newly liberated people uh, prepared to consecrate themselves and receive the law. A helpless people brought out by God's mighty hand to be his witnesses and representatives in the world, called to reflect his glory and his holy character in their life together. And the first and the fourth of these four descriptors, the chosen people and God's own possession, echo Isaiah 43, 20 to 21. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. So here the promise comes to the people in exile, seemingly lost again, thrust out by God himself, and yet they are assured they remain God's chosen people, formed for his possession. So these four well-known titles of the church echo the mighty work of God in liberating his people for himself, restoring them even as they suffer judgment. And in 1 Peter, all of this is summed up and made available to the Gentiles through Christ. We who have been, as it says in, in the beginning of the book, born again into a new and living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we become God's chosen and precious people because we're joined to Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone. We become God's royal priesthood because we are joined to the true king and priest, Jesus We become God's holy nation because we're set apart by him, destined to be conformed to his likeness and called to work out that eschatological promise in holy living today. Now, the theologian may be tempted to dwell on these four marvelous images of the church, all of which could be expounded upon for hours from the lectern, much to the chagrin of my students who are getting tired of my voice already. But our text moves very quickly from this fourfold description of the church to a singular description of the church's mission. So you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our election, our treasured status is not self-serving. It doesn't give us cause to exalt ourselves. It comes with a calling to witness to God's saving acts in Christ. And while it doesn't come through explicitly in the verses of of 1 Peter that we read today, the, the epistle as a whole makes it quite clear that this is about more than just words. And one of the things that strikes me as I read the opening two chapters of 1 Peter is the way it moves from these soaring descriptions of spiritual blessings to very mundane and this-worldly paranetic exhortations. So in chapter 1, after the encouraging promise of the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, there's this call to prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, like obedient children, be holy in all you do. 
after the call to rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy at the wonder of salvation, there's a warning. If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. After the reminder that the ransomed have been bought with the blood of Christ, more precious than silver or gold, there's a call to love one another deeply from the heart and a challenge to rid yourselves of all malice and guile and insincerity, envy and all slander. And finally, immediately after the reading where we stop today in chapter 2, it moves to an exhortation to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. And it moves from there even into an even more extended set of instructions for Christian conduct in the world. Clearly, the calling of God's elect, royal, priestly, holy people is that we might show forth God's praise not only with our lips, but with our lives. This is our divine calling as God's priestly people, gathered together from every nation on the earth and scattered as sojourners in every place to be his salt and light. As in Christ we are chosen and holy, so with Christ we follow the way of the cross in offering ourselves up in love for God and service to our neighbor, even in the face of rejection. So again, I find myself back with Gideon wondering if these words are really addressed to us, at least to the church I know. It seems strange that this church beset by divisions, shouldering a legacy of common abuses committed in God's name, might be God's holy and precious people. But that is the promise of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We who are in Christ are what First Peter says we are. A royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, God's own possession, all of these titles are promised to us in Christ. We pray for these things to be realized in us today in the church, knowing that they are already promised to us. We can pray that we would truly be one spiritual house built together as living stones on the cornerstone of Christ because we know that the eschatological church is that perfect and complete spiritual house. Unity is our future. God will bring it about in spite of present appearances. It is strange and mysterious, but it's no less strange and mysterious than God's call to Abraham, God's rescue of Israel, no less astounding than God's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel in exile. In Christ, we who were not a people have become God's people. And if God can create this people from no people, surely he can heal our brokenness and draw us back together in his good time. And so the long eclipses of the church's light will one day be replaced by the uninterrupted brightness of a purified and perfected church clothed with Christ forever.
So our unity in Christ is it's an eschatological reality. It's a promise. It's our future. And so we can pray boldly knowing one day it will be true. But as the 1961 prayer for unity puts it, this unity which is not yet judges us now. If this is our ultimate future, if this is what God desires for his church and what Christ prayed for and what he will one day accomplish, then this future unity calls us now to recognize and confess and repent of our continued failure to live as God's priestly people in the world. So we pray for Christian unity and we remember all of these wonderful promises that are ours in Christ, but we also bring our failures to God's throne and surrender them to him. Prayer for unity cannot ignore our deliberate attempts to smash one another's altars. And as important as it is for us to struggle with this tension theologically, theological reflection on this problem without prayer would be frivolous. So we pray for unity. We put ourselves before God, remembering that we stand shoulder to shoulder with estranged brothers and sisters. We bring the scandal of our division to God and ask him to transform it and to transform us. So we pray in hope that we will one day be what God has called us to be in Christ, that we will grow up in our salvation, that God will unite us in our common foundation in Christ and enable us in our common vocation to proclaim his gospel in word and deed. Well, obviously a lot has changed in 40 years. The altar is still here. I don't see any of you packing sledgehammers. But I've been told another story about Tyndale from a more recent past, that our past president, Brian Stiller, was here touring this property with one of the sisters. And they were in this, this chapel, and she was explaining to him the wonderful carvings of the Stations of the Cross along the walls. And apparently she turned to him and said, I guess you'll be removing all of these. She probably heard about the sledgehammers. But he replied, why? It's our story too. What a wonderful answer. The story of the cross is our story too. It's one story, one chosen, royal, priestly, holy people built upon Christ as our cornerstone with one future toward which we are all journeying and one calling to proclaim God's mighty deeds and follow Christ in offering ourselves to the world. Amen.